This week on Crime World... There was a Republican police from 1920. I mean, the IRA was effectively trying to run an underground government. And actually, there was a crime wave. 1919-1920, there's a wave of bank robberies, post office robberies, robberies of individuals, robberies of pubs in Dublin and in rural areas as well. So the IRA tried to actually clamp down on that. They, on occasion, solving bank robberies and giving the money back to the banks. Now, I'm Nicola Talent, and you can listen to my podcast, Crime World, wherever you get your podcasts. Shachtan, an Indo Askeliga. Time in Mon Europe, the end of Chacht Erechor. Agasuligum, a Makan Shah, Gurfeder Echor, Inuik Kart, Len of Winterfein. Skilti, Fis, Turmi. Tashe Dochretche, Nach Vetoch, Ara, Igornamion, on Kestin Echol. Vientalam Aginom Griv, Orkar Nrachtum. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. This podcast contains descriptions of domestic violence that some listeners may find distressing. And not to be able to touch her, not to be able to give her a kiss, not to be able to hold her hand, not to be able to say goodbye because she's evidence. Today on the Indo-Daily, Jenny's Law and Protecting Domestic Violence Victims. Jennifer loved to smile and had a heart of gold. She was bubbly and loved by everyone who met her. She was an amazing mother to her two children who she loved and protected so dearly. Jennifer Poole, a vibrant mother of two, was murdered by her ex-partner. They were your last pictures of her. They were last, you know, memories of your sister. as lying there in a, a bed full of blood. Not being able to say goodbye, not being able to touch her. But her murderer had previous convictions for assaulting a former partner, which Jennifer did not know about. She stopped going to GAA, she stopped going to the gym. She always took pride in how she looked. It was just like she had completely lost that sense of pride in herself. Obviously, looking back, it was he had really stripped her down to, to the bare minimum and built her up to the way he wanted her. And that control of where she went and what she did. Now Jennifer's family are campaigning for changes to the law to protect women in danger. I'm Fiona Sheehan and today on the Indo-Daily I'm joined by Jason Poole to talk about Jenny's Law and Ellen Coyne, news correspondent with the Irish Independent, to discuss how domestic violence registers work. Jason, can you tell me about your, your sister Jennifer? Yeah, Jennifer was uh, 24 years old when she died. She was the mother of two children, a little boy, a little girl, and she was the youngest of the siblings in the family. Jennifer was a very outgoing, loved life, loved music, loved going out with her friends, loved spending time with her family, loved GAA, loved the gym. She was reliable. She was honest, trustworthy. She worked as a, a carer in a nursing home. Like, she was an all-rounder, you know, everyone knew her. She was very well liked. She gave up her time in the community. She volunteered, you know, in youth clubs and summer camps. She she consistently was just a good person. And everyone, as I said, knew her and everyone loved her. What are your abiding memories, I suppose, from, from growing up uh, with her as her older brother? Jennifer loved angels. And she had a shed out the back garden. And she used to have all her angels in the shed. And that's where she spent most of her time, you know. Obviously, she, she played for the school football team in primary school and then she went to secondary school and, you know, she was very much involved in Aaron's Isle, the local GA club. She lived over there, she went training, she 
played her matches. She was always in her in her sports gear. And even growing up, like she was always out and enjoying herself with her friends on the street, playing. And, you know, she wasn't one that would be in very often. She always loved out being outdoors and getting up to mischief and going over to the park and stuff when she wasn't allowed, you know. She was a good a good kid as as her older brother. Like she never would have given any hassle or or trouble or brought trouble to the door or you know, she was she was a good one. So she's exuberant, vibrant, energetic young woman. Then a, a new boyfriend, Gavin Murphy, comes along. What what was your what were your initial feelings on him? I think from from the very beginning there was something that just did not fit with him. He was around when she was around. That's kind of the only time you would have seen him. But you could see from very early on, you know, that if Jennifer walked into a room, he'd walk into the room behind her. He'd be texting her from the other side of the room. If she walked out of the room, he'd walk out of the room. If she bought a car, she was at the learning how to drive. He'd be driving the car and he'd be like, he'd be saying to her, Jennifer, you know, why why is he driving your car? It's your car, it's your money that you've you've now worked for. Small little things. I remember one Christmas, the only Christmas that he was ever in our family home, and he sat at a, at a different table. Like, we had a small table where we put all the, the gifts and stuff, and that's where he sat eating his Christmas dinner. If he was around in your company, he never spoke to you. He was always on the phone. There was never any interaction with him. Um, and, and you could see very early on, I suppose, looking back at it, the things that you don't know or you don't, you're not aware of until something like this happens to your family, and you see those red flags... And all of the red flags that we seen, you know, um, but not knowing what they were, I suppose, at the time, you know, of the, the phone in or out of the room and the control piece. Jennifer was heavily involved, as I said, in, in GAA. She stopped going to GAA. I used to go up and take the kids when she went to the gym. She stopped going to the gym. There was just all of these things that she did that she didn't seem to do anymore. She always took pride in how she looked. Like there was days he'd say to her, Jennifer, like, you know, did you did you wake up out of the other side of the bed? Like, you know, or you'd be saying to her, you're going to work, your hair's not even brushed. It was just like she had completely lost that sense of pride in herself. And obviously looking back, it was he had really stripped her down to the bare minimum and built him up, build her up to the way he wanted her. And that control of where she went and what she did really was was able to be seen. We we knew there was something just not right, but nobody could ever put their, their hand on it, what it was. And, you know, when you've built somebody up to the way you want them, then they start lying for you. So when we challenge her on things or she'd come in with bruises or she'd come in with marks in her face or she'd have a black eye, you'd say to her, what happened? And she'd be old and she'd blame the kids or, you know, we were all playing camogie and I got a smack of the slitter or there was always an explanation. She always had a good story. In hindsight, they were the bruises that he was leaving on her. In hindsight, you're seeing these the red flags, the course of control, and and the change in in her behaviour, and and ultimately Jennifer recognised this herself, and and she ended the relationship. She did end the relationship. She had ended it before and took him back, and then she had ended the relationship the week before she was murdered. She had packed all his belongings and moved them out of the home. Um, and she was back living in the home with just her two children that week. Uh, and even when we, when we went to clean out our apartment, you know, there wasn't one single thing in the apartment belonged to him. She really had meant business that week and had ended the relationship once and for all. And she was ready to move on with her life. And the phone call I had with her the day before she was murdered, that was the conversation. The conversation between me and her was probably about 25 minutes long. 
and it was about her getting the courage to do what she did and moving on with her life. He had broke the television and I had given her the money to buy a new television and, you know, that was the kind of conversation we were having. Little did I know, 24 hours later would be the, you know, the dreaded call that you were going to get. Can you take me through that that awful day in, in April of 2021? Yeah, I suppose it was a really, really nice day. And one of Jennifer's kids had had a sleepover with my mom and they had all decided they were going to go to Hout for the day. And Jennifer's daughter wanted a set of clothes, that particular set of clothes that she wanted. Um, and Jennifer was at to be out on in the car and when my mom rang, she said she'd go back to the house and uh, get the clothes that the daughter wanted. I suppose we, we weren't aware at the time that he had con contacted her that morning and asked could he have a shower in the house that there was no hot water so she had let him into the house she had went off with the son in the car um, and they had parked up around the corner waiting on him to be finished the shower she rang the neighbour and asked the neighbour if he was still there and the neighbour didn't know if he was still there so Jennifer went back to the apartment to get the clothes when she went in she never came back out and it kind of all happened very very quickly Jennifer's friend and neighbour Danielle Tuffy tried but couldn't break down the door as Jennifer screamed from inside for help and for Danielle to kick it in. In about six or seven minutes from the time she entered the building to the time the, the guards arrived, um, it was only seven or eight minutes. At around ten past two, Garthy responded to a call. Neighbours had heard screams and a man was seen jumping from the woman's balcony. When emergency services got to the first floor apartment, they discovered mother of two, 24-year-old Jenny Poole. She had sustained a stab wound to the neck. It's understood her young son was in the apartment at the time. I suppose my mum and my sister kind of, you know, were like, oh, where's Jennifer? Why isn't she here? And they went up to the house um, to see where she was and to get the clothes off her. And when they got there, the apartment was surrounded by police, fire brigade, ambulance um, and lots of people. So... They were trying to work on Jennifer inside the apartment um, and my sister rang me and she said Jennifer's had to be stabbed, Jennifer's had to be stabbed. Um, at this point we didn't know Jennifer was dead, alive um, and she was taken out of the apartment by the ambulance and brought to Connolly Hospital. I was on the M50 and I went straight across to Connolly Hospital and when I got there I just knew something wasn't right. The guards were standing at the door waiting for me when I arrived and they brought us into a small little room um, and the doctor just came in and just said that Jennifer was dead. At that point then, Claire had arrived, my sister, and then my mum had arrived. Um, my dad was on his way back. Um, he was on the motorway as well. My brother was on the way. I suppose I was left then to, to kind of give the news to everybody else um, that Jennifer had died of her injuries. And I remember distinctly the guard um, coming to me and said, you know, someone has to identify her um, and we think you you should be the one that does it. And I suppose they had seen probably me trying to organise everybody and, you know, we weren't allowed to see her so there was no point just hanging around the hospital um, because at that point she was, you know, she was evidence. The family all went off and I held back and then I was brought in to see Jennifer and she was just lying there on the bed. You could see bruising, wounds, blood, and I suppose the guard just asked me the question, you know, 
what's the person's name, you do, do, or date of birth, and your relationship to that person. For the whole time, all I could kind of, she was wearing a nose ring. I kind of just kept trying to focus on the nose ring because that's your baby's sister lying there. And not to be able to touch her, not to be able to give her a kiss, not to be able to hold her hand, not to be able to say goodbye because she's evidence. And, and that's the way it is and, and that's no fault of anybody. But until, I suppose, you go to court and you have your your information, you can't touch your body because in case your fingerprints or your marks are on her or you disturb evidence. So it was it was a very cold experience. And then having to go back home and they were your last pictures of her, they were last, you know, memories of your sister is lying there in a, a bed full of blood. Not being able to say goodbye, not being able to touch her. So it was difficult. Yeah, just a, a horrific experience. And and my heart goes out to you entirely that you had to, to go through that and also the bravery on your part to to, to do that. And subsequently, it, it, it emerges that there was a history here with Murphy, her, her ex-boyfriend, that, that he had uh, assaulted a, a previous partner. Yeah, I suppose we were very kept in the dark in relation to Gavin's past. When, when Jennifer met Gavin, he told her that he was living abroad in Spain for three years and that he had just returned to Ireland. And we, we kind of, that's a story we were led to believe and we just assumed, you know, that was the correct story. Why would you lie? And it wasn't until, I suppose, it was coming up to trial time and we were in court. His charges were read out. His previous convictions, which he had 16 of them, one of them was a, a charge for assault of his ex-partner and her mother. And it was a knife attack as well. And he had done three years in prison. So it kind of made sense that when he told Jennifer that he was in Spain, he was actually in prison here in Ireland. And since, I suppose, the the case in court, you know, he had other assault charges um, for for other offences that only came up after he had been charged with Jennifer's murder that none of us were aware of. And even while he was in prison, He's he's not been able to manage himself. He's been attacking prisoners. He's been attacking staff. He's been wrecking the cell. Like the list is endless of of the things he's done while he's been in prison. So this man is a man who can't control himself, and most definitely can't control himself around women. He needs to be in power. And and that day that he took her life, it was like, you know, for us, it's like you know Jennifer was moving on with her life, and he was like, well, if I can't have you, nobody's gonna have you. And, and that's really, that was the real, you know, the sickening part in your stomach knowing that he knew she was going to move on with her life and he wasn't acceptance of that because he was losing control. Jennifer's two children had their mother robbed from them at seven and four and now ask, where is my mammy? When will I see her again? What does she eat now? When will she come back out of the ground? He was given a mandatory life sentence, uh, a sentence of life imprisonment at, at the, the Central Criminal Court in, in April of, of last year. But this is part of, of the, the campaign now that, that, that you're, you're looking at is, is kind of twofold. One is you want the parole laws and, and the, the, the sentences that, that criminals like this uh, are sentenced to, to actually be served. 
Yeah, like at the end of the day, like when when you've done an attack on a on a, a previous partner and your her mother, the, the sentence he was given, if he had a serve that time, him and Jennifer would have never met. We know people can reform and be, people can change. This man will never change, and he has shown that already before he was even let out of prison the first time. So I suppose the first part of of the fight that we will will continue is that. For the likes of a, of, of a, a case where it's a person has, you know, been murdered and the person has been given a mandatory life sentence, that it, there will be a minimum sentence served. Because we know now at the moment in Ireland, the, the average life sentence is only 18 years. In 18 years, you know, Jennifer's children will only be in their mid-20s. They're never getting their mammy back. Their mammy doesn't appear back in 18 years. This man shouldn't be allowed out you know, in 18 years. And and before that, he can apply for parole after 10, 11 years. So after 12 years, he could be walking the streets. That's that's not acceptable in society anymore. What does that say about our system? What does it say about how we actually really think about women in, in Ireland in 2023, when we can allow that to happen? Tell me then about the, the, the second part of your campaign. Now that's a, a domestic violence register, Jenny's Law, in effect. So where a person has already got a conviction or where, I suppose, a guard has come out and there's been a serious amount of uh, domestic violence-related incidents that they will be recorded on uh, this system called the Domestic Violence Register and ideally we would have it called Jenny's Law. Um, so guards could act, I suppose, also when children are involved. That victims could check the register if they have uh, incidents in their relationship or where there are concerns. So the right to ask scheme, I suppose, is what we're looking at. We have Claire's Law in the UK, which I suppose allows people who are potentially at risk to apply to access a register to see if the person that they are living with has previous for this. Because that's, that's in Jennifer's case, if that register was in place, we would have been able to access, or Jennifer would have been able to access and find out that Gavin Murphy had a conviction for domestic violence and knife crime in the past. There's a, a piece around emergency barring orders. And in, in Ireland at the moment, an emergency barring order only gives you eight days. Now, I don't know what person who has been stripped down of the per, the type of person they were and rebuilt back up and controlled, what they would do in eight days. It will take them eight days to figure out where they're at and what they need to do moving forward. But an emergency barring order would only last eight days from the time it was issued. So we're looking at trying to have that increase to maybe a minimum of 20 days and that safety orders emergency barn orders and protection orders could be made at a local guard station by maybe a superintendent when there's reasons explained and there's a real genuine concern for that person's safety not that they're going to be handed out to anybody but at the moment in Jennifer's case the control that he had of Jennifer if she was able to go to Fingers Garda Station or Blanchestown Garda Station it would have taken her a minimum probably of 20, 25 minutes. And she could have went and spoke to a guard who could have given her a safety order or a protection order. Instead, she would have had to go to the courts, spend five or six hours in the courts, but she wouldn't have been able to explain where she was for five or six hours. So that would have automatically led to another argument or another punch. What response did you get from the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, when you when you discussed these measures with her? I suppose Helen McEntee was, was you know, she, she listened and she took things on board and she said that she would look at how it would be implemented 
um, and that the re- a report would come from the Garda Commissioner as to, from their side of things. Now, we all know resources are a, new, a huge issue. Resources are a, new, a huge issue across every aspect of society at the moment. But the, the whole piece around GDPR um, and being able to have anyone access that information was kind of the stumbling block um, from our last conversation and it wasn't seen as a priority. Ellen, a law like this is in place in the UK, uh, known as Clare's Law, named after Clare Wood, who was murdered back in 2009. So Australia, Canada, the UK, they're all using these types of, of systems. What would you see as the legal concerns or, or the reasons why there might be some hesitation on government part to, to bring in something like uh, Jenny's Law? So I think broadly everyone agrees with the principle of such a register because I think it's it's broadly accepted that people who are domestic abusers tend to be serial domestic abusers and obviously there's merit in people knowing if somebody has had a violent past. I think the issues that you might meet when you come into something like a register would maybe be a data protection issue and even you mentioned there in the UK where they adopted Claire's Law, rather than a register they moved more towards a system of disclosure. So if you actively pr- approach the police and ask them, you know, I'm concerned about my partner, I'd like to know their past. The police legally have the right to tell you. And equally, if the police become aware that someone with a violent past has engaged in a new relationship, if they deem it of merit, they can approach that person and let them know about the person's past. So maybe a more nuanced system of disclosure like that might be something that we might adopt here. I know that there has certainly been a very strong support from Helen McEntee and then Simon Harris, who has kind of stepped in for her while she's on maternity leave for the principle of a domestic violence disclosure. But at the moment, the government is talking to the Gardaí to try to establish exactly how this would work, because a law like this, something as important as this, isn't something that you would like to have bogged down in legal challenges. It's operates though in the UK. Would, would, has it been seamless, or have they found it's, it's been it's been difficult? I mean, there's been academic studies done that have that have kind of given mixed reviews on its impact. Yeah, and I suppose in fairness to Claire's Law, it's this is an area where, unfortunately, sometimes criminal justice measures can only be so effective because we know this is an area where if somebody is in an abusive relationship with somebody, they suspect they have a violent past. There's so many factors there that would stop you from walking into a police station, even just to ask about their past, never mind to report them. So so there is problems there because you are relying on women and it is in most cases women to kind of engage with the criminal justice system in the way in that they have to approach the police and ask for this information. So that will always be um, a barrier. I think though, um, when Helen McEntee was talking about this with uh, Drew Harris last year, she was kind of suggesting and proposing it could be a model like the sex offenders register, which is something that already uh, that you know a lot of countries already have and already kind of works as a system. But I suppose you could imagine a situation where there might be pushback from somebody who was previously convicted, maybe feels that they were wrongly convicted, and then has their name on this um, on this register imagining, you know, future partners kind of checking them against that. So it is a difficult area. The campaign it, it, it's obviously keeping Jenny's memory alive and, and trying to ensure that, that her life, which was so tragically taken, that, that from that you can help protect uh, other women in, in particular circum- in the same types of circumstances. How difficult is it, though, for, for you and your family, just birthdays, 
Mother's Day, Christmas and so on without Jenny, with, with her two kids and, and, and as her family members as a whole? Jennifer was the life and soul of everything. You know, she really was. We've seen her every morning before work when she'd be dropping the kids off. We've seen her in the afternoon. Every day you wake up and it's just like this dark cloud every single day. The Christmases and the birthdays and the Mother's Day are, are worse because they're the days that Jennifer loved the most. She loved celebrating the family. We miss all of those things, but we miss waking up every day and not seeing her face. And every day you wake up and you think it's a nightmare and very quickly reality kicks in. You know, when you see the children's faces and you see our faces looking in the mirror, it's just not the same. We're not the same people um, as we used to be. There's that, you know, you get up and you get on with it. And, and you just take each day as it comes. And for, for us, as well as as a family, this is this is what keeps us going. The fact that we're, we're fighting in Jenny's name to make sure that her, her name is never forgotten. But in the meantime, making sure that no family should have to go through what we went through. And my thanks to Jason Poole and Ellen Coyne. I'm Fiona Sheen, and today's episode was produced by Mary Carroll, researched by Garrett Mulhall, with sound by Dara Kelly. Archive clips from Virgin Media News, RTE and Independent.ie. If you have been affected by this podcast, you can contact the Women's Aid National 24-Hour Helpline on 1-800-341-900. You can also call the National Mail Advice Line on 1-800-816-588. If you enjoy the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review.